0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Samuel Beckett, 1906 to 1989, lived in Paris and wrote his plays and novels in French. Not because his French was better than his English, but because it was worse. In works such as Waiting for Godot, Endgame, Malloy and Malone Dies, he wanted to show the limitations of language, what words could not do, together with the absurdity and humour of the human condition. In part, he was reacting to the verbal omnipotence of James Joyce, with whom he'd worked in Paris, and in part to his experience in the French Resistance during World War II, when he used code writing not to reveal meaning but to conceal it. With me to discuss Samuel Beckett are Steve Connor, professor of English at the University of Cambridge, Laura Salisbury, professor of modern literature at the University of Exeter, and Mark Nixon, associate professor in modern literature at the University of Reading and co-director of the Beckett International Foundation. Steve Connor, what was Beckett's background in Ireland? Well, Beckett had a, a, a rather, in a way,
1: undramatic, unglamorous upbringing. He was brought up in a wealthy suburb of. Dublin Foxrock, um, in a largely Protestant community. His his family were pretty staunchly Protestant. His father was a quantity surveyor, successful businessman. Uh, Beckett did ext- extremely well at school, very successful. It looked as though he was um, his path was set out for him, either to join the family firm. Or, when that didn't seem to be working out, um, because uh, he'd done very well at school, he'd got himself into Trinity College, it looks as though uh, he was going to become safely entombed as an academic in Trinity College. That's the point at which things began
0: to... What did he read at Trinity College? He
1: read languages. He read French and uh, Italian. And it was when he was away in Paris, uh, he was um, set up for a, an academic post a fellowship on his return from the École Normale, I think I'm right in saying, in Paris, and somehow that, during that year in Paris, it all suddenly seemed to become impossible there was a a sort of crisis for Beckett, he did go back um, to Dublin, but it was not going to be possible for him to be an academic For the rest of his life, I think the sense of that, not disappointment, the sense of a kind of narrow escape, I think, from from his point of view, um, always, I think, kind of dogged or haunted him. He was, you know, he, he remained tremendously involved with academic thinking.
0: You seem to suggest there was something that cracked him. Was there a thing, or was it an accretion of things? Was it being away from Ireland? Was it meeting James Joyce? Or I think was it, it, I think it
1: was certainly being in a very different environment in Paris. Although you know he was in quite an academic environment in Paris, he, he might have just moved smoothly back. And I don't think it's—I don't think there is one thing, but I think it is certainly the case that uh, all of a sudden the world outside. Ireland and in particular Dublin opened itself out for him as it had for James Joyce before him
0: But he met James Joyce who was 24 years older than he was and beginning a great international success and James Joyce sort of, as it were took him up yes. uh, and that was a huge impact, had a huge impact on
1: him. Enormously important and Beckett remained to the end of his life uh, full of respect admiration for this this heroic character he called him, um, he became um, one of a, a quite a large entourage of people who helped joyce joyce 's sight was terribly bad. it had always been terribly bad, but it was getting worse, and so he needed the help of people to do a lot of a lot of reading for him. Uh, he was never exactly joyce 's secretary, although that was sometimes said for quite a long time, but he certainly worked very closely with him. Uh, Just to
0: clear up any doubt, can you tell those those few listeners who don't know what the size of Joyce's reputation was and for what?
1: Well, Joyce had published his masterwork really Ulysses in 1922 and he was he was really at the center of the European avant-garde. This Irish writer was was regarded by many as the most dramatic the most challenging, the most provocative uh, and the most authoritative modern writer, really. Joyce had embarked on his 17-year undertaking of writing the book that would become Finnegan's Wake. And, in fact, um, Beckett translated a little bit of Finnegan's Wake, a rather strange notion. It's hard to know what language it's in in the first place, but he he produced a French version of one of the chapters of that.
0: So, Laura Salisbury, he was... Uh, in this great world around Joyce uh, can you give us some idea who else was in it because was it, wh- wh- what other sort of artists who, who might have influenced him and so on what was going on it's the 1920s can you just tell us about it
2: yes well I think the interesting thing is that Beckett wasn't particularly a part of the sort of expatriate modernist um, pe- groups people like Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway but he was very very involved with a particular Irish group that had Accumulated around Joyce so he had friends there like Thomas McGreevy who was a poet um, but he became involved with the group around the little magazine called Transition which had really been set up by the trilingual American French-German uh, writer called Eugène Jolas uh, and this Part of Transition's purpose, really, was to publish what was called at the time Work in Progress and then later became Finnegan's Wake. And Beckett had um, some of his very first publications in that journal or that little magazine, and he contributed to the attempt to demonstrate to the world that this book or what was going to become a book Work in Progress actually had a value because although Joyce had been extremely uh, successful with Ulysses, people actually didn't want to publish Work in Progress because they said it was unreadable and so Beckett was involved This is Finnegan's work, it was unreadable Yes, yes. so Beckett was involved in writing a defence of that, um, saying that actually the people who wanted uh, Fingan's Wakes to be something different to what it was didn't understand that this was actually pushing language absolutely to a different kind of limit.
0: Can we just go a bit further with the relationship between Joyce and Beckett? I said, I think I said, um, Joyce to a certain extent adopted this younger man, so some of you say in your notes. Anyway, he enjoyed having this chap mm. running around after him. What, it was, what was Beckett getting from Joyce in terms of intellectual development and also personally?
2: Well, I think he got the sense of Joyce's extraordinary capacity across languages, um, his engagement with philosophy. Um, Beckett was also involved with Joyce's family. He um, had a brief relationship with Joyce's daughter, Lucia, that ended rather badly and, in fact, nearly came between Joyce and Beckett. So that was a very difficult Aspect because really I think Beckett was interested in Joyce more than he was interested in Lucia although he remained very kind to her throughout um, his life but she uh,
0: eventually ended up in sadly in a psychiatric ward she did schizophrenia yeah
2: yes she did Um, and and Beckett I think kept her in mind throughout his life, actually, although there was a certain kind of guilty. um, I think he felt guilty that perhaps she felt more for him than he did for her. But certainly Joyce, I think, was seen by Beckett as somebody who was doing something, an Irishman who was doing something with modernism that was not about nationalism, but was about a real polyglot internationalism.
0: Beckett in the 30s also travelled in Germany mm-hmm. and his reaction to Germany was not quite what we'd have expected.
2: Yes, yes. Well, um it was I think Beckett was perhaps aware earlier than some others about the difficulties that were emerging in Germany in the 1930s. He had family who lived there, family who were Jewish. So he had a sense of the looming difficulties of um, the emergence of fascism, but really a lot of what he was up to when he went uh, into Germany was to educate himself about art and about painting in particular So in
0: terms of the intensity of his diaries which are always there, there's not a great mention, there's not a great outrage at what is going on politically in Germany
2: I think there are moments, there are moments uh, where you, where not you a, find it, but um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a political diary, it's an aesthetic diary and it's about Beckett's coming to an understanding of what he thinks art might be and what it is art might do.
0: Let's stick with the uh, diaries and Mark Nixon. What do the diaries and notebooks of that time reveal about him?
3: Well, the earlier notebooks, um, in the early 30s, he keeps a lot of notebooks on a range of topics. Uh, He takes notes on philosophy, he takes notes on um, psychology. Which particular philosophers? Um, Actually, the notes that we have are from a history of philosophy uh, written by uh, Wilhelm Windelband, And essentially, he copies out all the way from the beginning, pre-Socratics all the way through to 19th century philosophy, he uh, copies out large parts, so there's no one philosopher that stands out in these particular set of notes. Um, he tends to just, um, as it were, give a survey of the entire field, and the other sets of notes are equally interesting. Uh, especially, he takes notes on the literary histories of England, Germany, France, and it's it's a it's they're, they're, a, they're a sign of his, his 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 continual academic kind of approach to uh, knowledge and so forth. As just mentioned before, the German diaries are fascinating documents. They're the only diary um, that we know Beckett ever kept uh, during his trip um, through Nazi Germany uh, from October 1936 to April 1937. And they're fascinating because they're they're very meticulous. He records everything that he witnesses and sees and does during the day. Um, He writes down every single meal that he has. Um, He records the conversations that he has with people in, in pubs. And in particular, yes, they are a record of his, his intense scrutiny and study of uh, art, both in galleries, um, public galleries, but also in private collections.
0: With the Virginia Woolf was similar. She, she, as it were, I'm sorry to use this word, maybe it's the wrong word, please correct me. She, as it were, breezed through g- Germany without making the contact that one would have expected, that, say, ordinary and Isha would did, for instance.
3: Yeah, that is, that is true. I think that's that's very that's very the, the, in, in Becker's case very very different. Um, he really engages with the politics of the day, with with the people that he meets, and and generally the the situation within Germany.
0: Right, I got a different impression from the notes, so I was obviously wrong there. When the war started, um, and why did they stay in France?
3: Well, I think, well, he was in Ireland when when war broke out. Um, There's the the, the famous quote, whether it is a quote or or not, where Beckett says that he preferred France at war to Ireland at peace. But I think the fact of the matter is, at that point, he, he considered France his home. And so it was quite understandable for him to return to France, even though uh, war had just broken out. And his partner, Suzanne, lived there. Uh, he had his flat there. He had, most of his friends were living in Paris at the time. And at the same time, I do, I do generally think that he, I think he was quite willing to stand up against fascism around that time. He worked for a resistance group called Gloria. What did you do in that group? Well, essentially, he was given information which he uh, re-encoded, he copied out, which was then passed on to uh, Courier so that uh, these notes would make their way back to England. What were these notes about? Oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm actually
0: not quite 100% sure. Do you, Laura? I,
2: I don't think we know um, exactly what they're about. Um, but, um, but they're
0: about to give him a lot of trouble because he got raided by the uh, Gestapo and yes. just got an hour's notice. Then he and his, and his uh, fiancée, partner, Barnier. just got out in time and went to the south of France to around the Roussillon in Provence
3: yes that 's absolutely correct. Uh, the cell was betrayed by by a priest, I think, although that 's sometimes sometimes debated but he most of the cell uh, most of the, the other members of the cell were arrested
0: um, and he managed to get away pretty much by the skin of his teeth really Thank you, Steve Connor. When he went to the south of France he we are told he continued work in the resistance, but that 's not as well. That's not as well recorded, so where are we there?
1: I, I don't think there's very much evidence of him um, con- continuing systematically. I mean, of course, the, the point about groups like this is that they're not, you know, they're, they're not meant to be part of a well-known network, so they, they kept their heads down, but keeping their heads down was pretty much you know, what they did for the rest of the war, um, because although this was the notionally unoccupied territory, it was deeply, deeply unsafe so he needed to live absolutely incognito which he did, working in the fields, staying with farmers and continuing to write he'd published one, his his first real novel in 1938 um, and he wrote the most extraordinary book I think that anyone will ever read which has never really been published in its entirety um, on sheets of tissue paper with a blunt pencil almost unreadable night after night after night as he got back from labouring in the fields. It was an extraordinary time. A time of... What was this book on tissue paper about? This is called the book is called What and it's really a, um, about a man who arrives in a house and acts as a servant for a couple of years and then leaves but it's really a a, a book of obsessive compulsive logical games and investigations.
0: Um, You raise your hand.
2: Yes, well I was just going to say that there's an interesting link back to the work that Beckett was doing when he was in the resistance cell Gloria SMH because when he uh, at the end of the war he attempted to return to Ireland in order to visit his mother who was very ill Um, the British authorities confiscated the notebooks for what? because they thought they were code and actually when you look at them they do look Encoded in some kind of strange way. It's certainly not a kind of straightforward act of communication. Can we just go back to the, the
0: war? He's in the south of France. It's it's unoccupied, but it's still controlled. So, how does this experience of many years, or does it, affect a change his writing? I think it's.
1: I think it's the. There are there are two
0: things that come together.
1: One is the incredible tension suspicion, living from day to day, uh, not knowing, of course, how the war was was going to turn out, but, but equally, you know, not knowing what the next day is going to bring, um, not knowing whether he would ever return to the life that he'd begun slowly to build for himself as an artist and writer in Paris. But I think the other thing that was hugely formative was actually living among ordinary people. Um, He'd moved in in fairly exalted circles in many ways, academic circles, artistic bohemian circles. He was working with ordinary people. He was doing what, for the rest of his life, he always liked doing, which was hard, repetitive manual labour, an enormous consolation for him. And I think there was something humanising for this man who um, I'm not sure that it would have been terribly pleasant to meet Mr Beckett, before the Second World War, he was a moody, withdrawn, rather self-absorbed person. That seems to have changed um, largely as a result of this extraordinary exposure.
0: There are many, um, Loris Walsbury, who think that Waiting for Godot is some sort of abstraction of the way that he himself lived his life during the Second World War. Before we get to that, and we'd like to talk about Waiting for Godot a bit, could you tell people who don't know, could you possibly... <laughs> <laughs> you're not know, going to ask. Don't blink. Uh, what what it's about? If you can manage it, you're the first in the century.
2: Well, I think the plot the plot is kind of hard to describe. I, I'd want to invoke, I think, the Irish critic Vivian Mercier, who wrote uh, that Waiting for God is a play in which nothing happens twice. So the idea that it's it is quite hard to talk about action because there is no action. What you have is you have two figures, Vladimir and Estragon. They're sort of tramp-like figures. They are waiting. They're talking to each other. Um, whilst they're waiting for this figure called Mr Godot. um two more figures come on, Pozzo and Lucky. Lucky is clearly Pozzo's slave, and there's this very difficult, um, controlling power play that goes on between them. At the end of Act One, a boy comes on stage and tells Vladimir and Estragon that Mr Godot isn't coming today they say okay we'll go and then they don't so Act 2 they come (laughs) they're still there Um, Pozzo and Lucky come back on by now Lucky who had been able to speak in this extraordinary sort of um, explosion of language in Act 1 is by now mute Uh, Potso can no longer move around in the way that he could before and then a boy comes on at the end and says Mr Godot is not coming today and they say fine we will go and then they don't so that's about as good as I
0: can (laughs) and that's (laughs) heroic (laughs) certainly a round of applause (laughs) (laughs) in the breakfast or whatever it is of England so Mark Nixon Why do you think this place so brilliantly destroyed, <laughs> and where nothing happened twice? Why did why did it become such a phenomenon, which it has become? in this country all around the world in different cultures Japanese culture wherever you look it's still there it's still played it's on and on and on you know it comes back to the West End regularly and so on and so forth why has it been so successful?
3: Well the first thing we need to remember is that when it was first staged it wasn't successful Yeah we know Um, that but when it became successful it did become very successful and as you say it's still staged you know across the world Um, I think there 's various reasons for this. I think the humor of the play is, is something that still appeals to people i think it's it's it, because it 's a non specific humor it 's not it 's not rooted in within a, a particular historical moment I think it 's something that that still makes people generally laugh. At the same time, the the play is not all about laughs, and I think I think it's precisely those aspects of the play um, that the suffering, that as it were, is is, is a subtext to the play, um, is is something that speaks to us still today, especially in times of austerity and in times of a- migration. Uh, after all, these are homeless people, and I think it's it I think it's very telling that the play. Is very often and has very often been staged at times of crisis. Um, very famously, it was staged in Sarajevo in the early '90s during the Bosnian War. Um, By Susan Sontag. Yes, a Susan Sontag production, and it was staged, for example, in the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Katrina. Uh, in in the ruins, outdoors, it was it was performed. So I think I think it's a play that speaks to us because of that, because it somehow is something that we we can we can continuously relate to, and
0: it's also. <coughs> As you say, funny, it's cl- um, people, comics have played this and played it very well because it's full of clowning, isn't it? And, and Beckett loved the circus, he loved clowns, he loved clowning, and it's, that is part of it. As there is the sense of impromptu, there is a sense that the two of them are going where they're going, they don't know why, uh, it isn't written as a script, they're making it up as they go along. Yes,
3: absolutely. I mean, in many ways, um, the, the the play, obviously, one doesn't just wait, one does something while one waits. And in this case, the characters are, to a certain degree, keeping each other entertained and keeping themselves entertained as they go along. And that's precisely what entertains us. And we also uh, all have experienced waiting for all sorts of different things. So I think that's, you know, that's 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 the relevance of the play. And great title, Steve. Yeah, I, think,
1: and, and I think there's something very Irish about it. I think there's the, you know, needing to have a turn. Ne- everyone at the end of the evening needed to stand up and to be able to do your thing. Um, Beckett loved routines and he loved the expertise. He lo- unlooked for expertise of, of, of knowing how to do, you know, hat tricks and knowing how to do things together. I mean, it's clumsy in a sort of Tommy Cooper sort of way, but that... But the the kind of the cleverness of the art that disguises art is enormously important, and it's very vernacular. It's very popular. Um, it's about. I think one of the reasons for the success of the play is that that this is written at a moment at which big historical things are, as they do today, are are impacting on ordinary people's lives. And this is the play about what ordinary people do in the face of those uh, enormously world-historical kinds of suffering.
0: How do they pass the time? But is there anything you can say about the structure or lack of structure or deliberate lack of structure?
1: Well... what Beckett is trying I mean Beckett came to be very impatient with the play I think he found it very messy uh, compared with some of his later, much more austere,ly finished and formalized work, but I think what audience like about, audiences like about it is actually seeing the patterns emerging from the messy, chaotic. My God, what are we going to do next? Actually, seeing that there is there is some almost a kind of reassurance uh, in the fact that things just go come round and come round again. Although nothing ever repeats exactly in Beckett, and that's one of the that's one of the grimmest things about it everything always inexorably gets slightly worse
0: Laura
2: Yes, I was just thinking about um, the structure of something like Waiting for Godot, one of the reasons why it's hard to explain what goes on in it but also um, that it has this kind of relationship to things like vaudeville, it's as though the gags of something like vaudeville or the bits of farce that you might get it's like they've been moved center stage. Instead of them being the kind of warm-up act, this is the act. So the warm-up act is the thing that you get to be placed within, and it never comes to an end. So the moment where you know the narrative would take off, where Godo would arrive, where we'd find out what it was all about, you just never get there. You're kept within these these bits of drama that passed the time although as Beckett says or as the play says, but it would have passed in any case.
0: But the strange thing is, and, and Mark uh, pointed out quite correctly, that the begini- at the beginning it was not a success no. but then it became a tremendous success and it's just on the highest possible level and in every culture Now, it's not that one worships success at all, but it, this is phenomenal that this should happen to me, maybe not to you
2: I think it was I think it was very strange for Beckett, because, in a way, you know we think of him as the writer of failure and a writer of you know a sort of literature of exhaustion or a, a theatre of ex- exhaustion in many ways. And of course, Beckett spent, the latter part of the 1920s and the 1930s and quite a bit of the 40s, not being able to get published very easily. And he felt that failure very keenly. He didn't enjoy it at that point, or he didn't find much to make of it at that point. But I think what happened, particularly through the war, is a kind of realisation that within failure, within incapacity, within the way in which things go on when all going on is purposeless, that there is something to be made, even if it's only small things, something to be made from that. And I think one of the things about the reasons why Waiting for Godot retains its importance is that it speaks to people at moments when there is this sense of we're going on, we're going on, but we're never going to get to the thing where everything is achieved
0: is this related thing that um, Laura sang so eloquently to his decision to write in French i think it can do um i mean his <laughs> Well, what's your view of the reason he decided to write in French? Well,
3: well Beckett, Beckett struggled with language, um, language itself, from a very, very, very early period onwards. Um, already in the early early 1930s, in his, in his first unpublished novel, uh, Dream of Fair to Middling Women, he's already saying there that he's, that he's got a problem with the English language in particular and that the French language is much better because you can write without style, you can speak without style, as it were. And he, this, this distrust What does of, he mean, speak
0: without style, write without style? Well, style,
3: the, the idea that the English language has um, uh, many words for the same thing. Um, but I think he was also trying to alienate himself from language and therefore to, as it were, start again um, in a way that made him think about words in a far more careful
0: way. Is there also a feeling that he was trying to alienate himself from Joyce, who knew and could write everything, to a different sort of writer altogether? Well, that could well be. I mean, there's no... He, he never
3: said that himself. I mean, he himself always kept coming back to this idea of he wanted to, as it were, um, uh, find a language, as it were, that, that was more minimal, that was more more abstracted. Um, And I think the turn to French allowed him to do that. There's a very famous letter that he wrote in July 1937 to a German friend, and it's actually written in German, where, where he argues that the official lang- English language makes no sense to him anymore, and he feels that its, it's, become, its style and grammar has become as irrelevant as a, as a Victorian bathing suit. And he goes on to argue that what he wants to do is find a, a, a literature of the unword. He wants to, as it were, bore holes through the language until it becomes porous, and what's behind language becomes, becomes visible.
0: Um, Steve Connor, do you think he did that even more emphatically <coughs> in the novels? Malloy I, I think that
1: the advantage of the novels is that um, novels are there but in a sort of virtual way compared with the theater what does you that know? Mean? And so you could you can play with the, with the possibility that that um, the character that you are reading, Whose words you seem to be hearing—that is speaking to you—may be just an effect of the words themselves. I mean, when he said, and, and inf- "I'm not quite with you." Well, well of course, well, it's what he wanted them, so. to do, what he wanted to do, was to write a novel that was the equivalent. He hadn't written *Waiting for Godot* at this point, but that 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 had take that took away everything that was usually re- all of the appurtenances and furnishings of a novel: Which characters right. and settings and plot, um, and the one thing that uh, had to remain was that somebody had to be speaking or writing. When he said that he, it was easier to write without style in French, well, he said it in French, say plus facile d'écrire sans style, which is quite close to écrire sans stylo, which would mean in French writing without a pen. And in fact, he plays a little joke with that. In one of his novels, Malone Dies, where um, the character says, well, um, I've, I've lost my pencil. I don't really know how I'm even writing this. You know, so so the idea that you would that you would be somehow create a condition in which you'd be writing in a strange sort of thin air, with nothing to write about, nothing to
0: write with, except the writing itself. But I remember when I first read them, there's an extraordinary density. It's almost airless and you feel it's great or you feel it's good or you feel you can't stop reading but you can't keep reading because it almost hurts it your head. It is very, very... Yeah. Ab-
1: I r- had exactly that. I read them very early when I was an adolescent. I'm 16 or 17. But it, it was... A bad I found time them, to read them, I A think. bad time to read them. I found them very frightening. I found uh, the obsessiveness of them very frightening and, my, and the obsessiveness that I sort of developed with regard to them quite f- frightening and very, very laborious. Tr- tremendously arduous reads although you always get a little rewarding joke about every page and a half if you stick with it
0: yes. Laura the he indeed he 's in France he 's been in the south of France, but he goes back to Ireland now and then, mm-hmm. uh, not very often but principally to see his mother, and that has is a factor not only seeing his mother but it 's a factor in his writing
2: yes absolutely, um, so he returns. Um, really throughout the 1940s to see his mother who was becoming increasingly uh, unwell with Parkinson's. Um, This was something that I think Beckett Beckett had an extremely tense and difficult relationship with her, you know, right from the beginning it seems, although his relationship with his father seemed much more straightforward. His father but was a sporty type. He was, and yes. Beckett himself,
0: we haven't said yet, was yes. a sporty <laughs> type. A cricketer and, <laughs> he, uh, and all that.
2: Absolutely. So he, I think he had this, um, I think he had a bit of both of them in him I suppose, but um, certainly the relationship with May Beckett was... More difficult. Um, he had this experience of going back in the in the late forties to see her, which he called himself a revelation which is quite an odd word for Beckett to use not a very usual word for Beckett to use um, It was he saw her she was um, very frail she had Parkinson's, her face was completely expressionless and he said I, I looked at her and I realised that all my writing had been going along the wrong track, that I had thought that I could be like Joyce that I could add to the sum of knowledge in the world and then I realised that what I had to do was to embrace this quest- these Ideas of darkness, incapacity, um, ignorance and impotence. And he said, and that's when it was at that point, he said, that he started to write the things that he really felt.
0: And language not reaching the point of articulated and comprehensible expression.
2: Absolutely. Yes, that's right. Um, That Beckett, I think... As far back as Watt is very interested in the sort of strange materiality of language. Uh, Watt has these sections of pages and pages of permutation which are. Almost, I think, impossible to read. I think if you if you don't skim read those sections, that, that that says something very significant about you because they are they they just go on and on and on, and the language starts to detach really from what it might be referring to. Certainly, as we get us um, into something like uh, the unnameable this sense of a kind of compulsive and propulsive language is very is very key. And I think one of the really fascinating things about if you look at the note books that uh, the unnameable was written in was written in French first um is that it comes to the end right at the end of the notebook it was as though he needed the back cover in order to actually stop this um sort of well what would it be A sort of oozing or this propulsive uh relationship towards language so this is sort of the matter of the notebook itself needed to bring it to an end
0: Let's go back to the plays. Mark Nixon, Um, his plays are often staged with minimal uh, scenery and so on, Um, but he himself started often with clear images. Can you tell us a bit about that?
3: Yes, um, the manuscripts of of, of all the plays um, show that very often Beckett started out with a... a, uh, a more realistic kind of uh, setting or background than than the finished play would end up um, showing. We know, for example, from the manuscripts of Endgame that he was thinking uh, along the, uh, along the terms of of the First World War when he was writing the piece. But these kinds of um, historical specific details disappear as as he continues writing the plays. So what we have is a kind of an abstraction of something that is more more real and accessible. Uh, that ends up being
0: staged. And do you see him departing from... Because artists took him up very much later on, uh, took Beckett's work up and used his work. And do you see a relationship between the work he did for the plays and the work they did based on his work?
3: Well, I think so. I mean, in, in the sense that anybody who would stage Beckett's works would very often come back to the way that um, that Beckett staged his plays himself. Um, his his theatrical notebooks, uh, which contain the notes where he where he very meticulously plans uh, the staging of the plays. Um, I mean, if we see if we think of Godot as we were mentioning before as, as, as somewhat chaotic when it's on stage, um, his notes, uh, which which informs his own um, directing of the play, show just how immensely mathematical and precise uh, he's he's orchestrated and choreographed the plays. And you know, this Sorry. comes fully formed. There, there
1: is this little sketch for a play that he tried unsuccessfully to write about Doctor Johnson, of all people. And it, we only got only got a little scene from this. But actually, I've I've staged it as a dramatised reading, and it's perfectly imagined. I mean, when but it, um, this this play has a line in which the curmudgeonly old woman um, delivers herself of the view that I may be old, I may be blind, halt, and maim. I may be dying of a pituitous deflection, but my hearing is unimpaired. And you know, that just the absolute command um, in the midst of, 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 a, of a world that is falling apart um, is the characteristically Beckettian note, I think.
0: And one thing about Beckettian audiences that they're looking and expecting to find hidden meanings and so on yes. what's your view of that and yeah. you, I mean, Beck- can Beckett we bring can't... in this moment thinking that we've slightly skipped that, that the philosophers he particularly uh, I know he went through as we were told earlier he went through the whole book of philosophy and the one or two philosophers he sort of clove to
1: he was he was tremendously interested in and attracted to rené descartes who in a sense um begins the project of modern philosophy because he strips everything back to what he can't doubt and builds it all up from he can't doubt the fact he's thinking beckett strips it all back and also doubts the fact that he he may even be thinking um so so he's interested in that kind of philosophy that is that is absolute and that is about um, that is about dealing um with incapacity uh dealing with the the mysteriousness actually of the present to hand he doesn't uh, i don't think he was a much of an of an admirer of martin heidegger but i think he appreciated heidegger's uh Heidegger's attempt to grasp the, the simple there of existence, that we suddenly come to our understanding of ourselves in what, what Heidegger called a condition of geworfenheit, thrownness. One of Beckett's plays actually begins with, a, with a, a character thrown literally onto the stage, and just having to cope with the world that you're in, in a sense, was a philosophical kind of objective for Beckett um so so, so, this is why drama is so important to him because drama allows him uh Allows him and requires him to work with particular kinds of objects. I think it's wonderful that his father was a quantity surveyor because I think Beckett was in the way he directed his plays. The quality too. surveyor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it mattered how many. It mattered how much. Um, the the at the end of Waiting for Godot, one of the characters Estragon's trousers fall down because he takes the bit of rope out that's to hang themselves, uh, and the trousers fall down. And Beckett heard that the trousers in the production he wasn't there for this in paris the trousers hadn't fallen all the way down and he's anguished by this he writes a letter saying it's imperative the trousers must fall down to the ankles and this was this was this was the way in which he directed his plays what mattered were the details
0: laura what what's briefly been beckett's impact on other writers
2: well i think one of the really interesting things about beckett is that he wrote across so many different genres so he wrote fiction theater Poetry. He let's wrote. Start,
0: let's stick with drama for the moment. Well,
2: film, TV, and radio as well, also. But in terms of, um, if we think about fiction, um, then it, it certainly used to be the case that people used to think of Beckett as staging some kind of move between modernism and postmodernism. Yeah. Um, I think now we tend to think of Beckett as more of a, a late modernist, and you see his. Um, his particular style, his intre- interest in uh, number, his interest in calculation. Uh, a writer like J.M. Kurtzier, for instance, um, is extremely influenced by Beckett, did his PhD on Beckett, actually. But even um, in 2013, there's a, a book called A Girl is a Half Formed Thing by Ema McBride. But what do you say and,
0: about Stoppard? People, people, uh, people, people know well, what about Tom Stoppard and Harold Pinder, for instance?
2: I think they were, I mean, they were part of the same milieu in, in very many ways and this sense that what one might want to put on the stage, the conditions of life which are not realist but ones that are um, about nothing happening in various kinds of ways and what comes in to... How do you stage nothing... What happens when one nothing is followed by another nothing? What's the relationship between them? And I think that's something that Beckett and people who follow him are interested in um, passing out in various ways.
0: And to add on on to that, (coughs) Mark Dixon, you're on the Beckett Foundation. What would you say his legacy was at the moment?
3: Well, his legacy is, is extremely um, varied. I mean, the influence is not only on, on writers. Uh, Beckett has influenced uh, philosophers. Many philosophers have written about uh, about Beckett. Um, his influence on uh, classical music has been quite 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 noticeable. Um, we'll see the uh, we'll see Gyorgy Kurtág's opera of Endgame. Uh, Gyorgy Kortag, was a great Hungarian composer, um, so he's very clearly inspiring a lot of different people.
0: And you. Refined, I think I think that, that
1: Beckett withdrew from the world of omnicompetence of Joyce and what he even he I think couldn't have realised is that he would have opened up an entire world of possibility through what he did and I mean whatever I write is always made possible by the fact that Beckett seems to have developed a technique for something that no one's ever thought of having a technique for before like giving up There's a, you have to do that in some way or other
0: Thank you very much, Steve Conner, Laura Salisbury and Mark Nixon. Next week, the innovative mathematician Emma Nutter, whose colleagues objected to her teaching as she was a woman and who the Nazis sacked because she was a Jew, but whom Einstein called the most significant creative mathematical genius thus far produced. Thanks for listening.
2: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
1: We didn't talk much, you're right, about sport. I'm very keen on Beckett as um, a sportsman Laura Laura once rang me up or sent me an email with she'd just seen a bit of footage, the only footage I think I know of Beckett walking. Mm. And she said, This looks like a sportsman's walk. <laughs> There's a sort of bounce and swagger there. He was a boxer of all, he's supposed to have squared up to yeah. Peter O'Toole, really? which you'd have to have a bit of confidence in yourself to do, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I think that's a, it's the key to an awful lot of Beckett, it's the key to his capacity for absorption.
0: I was very interested in the mathematical thing and in the diagrams because yeah. it doesn't for uh, it isn't for me to contribute to the real program. But but to this bit, I did something with Beckett, uh, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to do an interview. But he he sent a What's plane. Was it TV? Yeah, when yeah. I was at the BBC, yeah. and he sent a plane which was which was like a piece of geometry to start with. And the lines—it's reminding me of the horrors of geometry at yes. school. Was, was, <laughs> was, was there, that quad? Yeah. 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 We have mm. the
3: manuscripts of reading, and it's you—you right. you open up the first page, and you're thinking this is maths, this is right. not a piece of literature.
0: Imagine getting that one in yeah. a young producer <laughs> <laughs> Well yes, thank you Mr Beckett <laughs> what do we do? Mm-hmm. Sorry I interrupted you.
2: Well, I think Beckett, Beckett's incredibly interested in systematic thinking but it's always systems that are on the point of breaking down so it's not, so at one level there's a sense that systems create a kind of hyper order but that hyper order is always tipping over into a kind of absurdity. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the system um it's it's the sort of glitches in the systems i think that beckett's really interested in and i would say even with um his philosophy he's not um i mean he 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 said i'm you know i'm no intellectual he said which of course isn't quite true i mean he's hmm. obviously very learned in all sorts of ways but i think part of what he means by that is that he means he's not somebody who has a kind of intellectual system that he is explaining or exploring hmm. he is um he is a writer who uses, he sort of grabs little bits of intellectual matter and does something with them in art. But he's, um, that, he's, not, he's not a systematic, uh, a fully systematic thinker.
3: I think he's, a, I think he's actually a sceptic to a certain degree. Mm. He doesn't like rationalising systems, essentially, mm. things that explain... The world away in many ways. It doesn't matter whether that's totalitarianism, and it also informs his, his I think distrust of religion in many ways.
0: There was I did I did I mean the people who do the notes for this are <coughs> spot on, but there was. It seems to me I I got myself confused about Germany because I'm, I'm sure I read that his interest in the Nazi movement was um, not particularly marked, and you seem to suggest. Like it was well he well he, he wasn't and he wasn't. He was a thing
3: purely because he was confronted with it, um, but he does, for example, say at one point in the diary, there's a wonderful line where he says, uh, "Listen like a fool to four ye- four hours." Of the opening of the Reichstag. So he actually spends four hours listening to all these broadcasts by Hitler and Goebbels and so forth. And he records his thoughts about, about what, he's, what he's hearing and what he's listening to. So there is an engagement with, with the everyday reality of, of, of politics within Nazi Germany at the time. I but think the divers show that. But
1: hardly anybody really engaged politically, apart from Auden and Isherwood, who mm-hmm. saw... Clearly, and partly because they had come from a much stronger kind of political investment in the first place, but many other writers, I think, you know, Virginia Woolf was the same, just saw all kinds of things um, that were objectionable about Nazi Germany, but it was mostly the fact that it was ugly and vulgar.
3: Well, but I think that upset it, them. Not that it was cruel and dangerous. I mean, the, the diaries are strange because, because at no point, or very rarely does he evaluate what he sees he tends to as it were just comment on what he sees rather than say, rather than evaluate it. But every now and again, there are glimpses of what he generally is feeling. Mm. I, I, the, the, there's a sense also that he was worried that the diaries were going to be confiscated. He was told more than once by the people that he was meeting, especially um, um, uh, um, persecuted artists, that if he went back to Ireland and published things, bad things about Germany, that they might get into trouble. I think that that air of suspicion and tension that he's witnessing within Nazi Germany, and he's mainly talking to persecuted artists. Yes, people that he meets in the pub and on the road, but he seeks out those people who are against the Nazis, or at least are artists that somehow are suffering. Um, And I think that's very telling. Yes.
1: I mean, his, there are, the, the the whole question of Beckett's politics is a is a complicated one because he was so sort of evasive, and I mean, he was he he was he was qu- really quite friendly with um, Theodore Adorno, um, who wrote about his work, which is a little bit hard to understand. There are there's, there's a funny why is uh, it
0: hard to understand?
1: Well, because because Adorno um, is so is so committed to a particular political line. Beckett is so sceptical and so... Which line is that? Um, well, that, that, that this is a, 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 a mode of aesthetically inflected Marxism um, that uh, that he finds exemplified in Beckett, and Beckett always kept that at, at arm's length. Um, Beckett did once write him a note, though, about the 1968 uprisings um, in, in Paris and elsewhere. Um, and the note says, rather oddly and perhaps rather typically... Never was such rightness allied to such foolishness, um, which leaves you not quite knowing what to think <laughs> <laughs> about to what he thinks about.
0: It. Yeah, I do. Th-
2: I think Beckett was. He was very. He was anxious about cruelty. Although, um, in many ways, his plays stage cruelty over and over again. This was something that I think when he saw it, he felt. Um, was politically objectionable, and I think he did. He did assert himself around that. He was a great signer of petitions, for instance, mm. and he was. He supported people like Václav Havel. He wrote a play uh, dedicated to him. He supported uh, anti-apartheid movements, that sort of thing. So there was a sense in which he wanted to align himself with certain kinds of politics of. Um, Liberation, but I think he was very anxious about the kinds of violence and systems that needed to be put in place in order to enact them. He died um, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall and apparently he was, he was in a nursing home at the time and he saw the Berlin Wall coming down and he, he said, ça va trop vite, it's going too fast. Sort of anxiety that, you know, it was, it was going too fast and the violence, the potential violence of it was going to... Um, produce
0: disaster? Well, disaster is a good way to end on because our producer is pawing at the door.
1: We really should go, but would you like tea or coffee first? Not for me, thank you. Let's go. Yes, we can't. can't. (laughs) They don't move.
2: In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
3: Before you go... Let me just squeeze in here and tell you about The Flip Podcast from BBC Radio 4. Each month, there's a new book set to listen to from people like Rhys James, Mae Martin and Joe Lycett. Subscribe to The Flip Podcast on BBC Sounds.